Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Courtney here with a special offer just for you. My new book is coming out in April. It's called Looking Up, A Birder's Guide to Hope Through Grief. It's all about grief and sorrow and the ways that birds and birding can bring us to a place of hope. It's a book of faith. It's a book of humor. We would love to give you a 20% discount. You can use this code, IVPPOD20. That's I-V-P-P-O-D-2-0. That code will give you 20% off and free shipping anywhere in the U.S. when you order from ivpress.com. Pick up your copy of Looking Up, A Birder's Guide to Hope Through Grief today. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today with us in the studio, we have Emma Gregg. She is the project leader for Project Feeder Watch through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Those of you who've been listening to the show for a while know we love the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. They do incredible work. We're so glad you're here. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for being here. Tell us, first, before we get into Feeder Watch, tell us about you. What do you do for Cornell? Well, I manage Feeder Watch, so that is my, my main role, but I actually came to the Lab of Ornithology as a postdoc many years ago, studying the songs of a little Australian bird called the fairy wren. So I, my origins at the lab were not Feeder Watch related, but then have become Feeder Watch related, and I have just grown to love the program so much over the past decade or so that I've been managing the program. I think fairy wren must have the best name of any bird. Like I think so, yeah. And <laughs> well, not wren. only that, but the species I worked on was called the splendid fairy wren. So it can actually get better than just fairy wren. It's like straight out of a children's book. Someone made that up. Yeah, well, someone did, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, tell us about Project Feeder Watch. What is it and how can we help? Yeah, well, Feeder Watch, um, it started, gosh, what was it? 37, 38 years ago now that the, um, it, well, it started even earlier than that in Canada, but then it can, uh, joined with the Lab of Ornithology to do a, a continent-wide count of winter birds. So really it is just this long-term effort to count the birds that come around your home, and in particular birds that are associated with bird feeders. Um, and so really that's that's the heart and core of it, although there are lots of other details, of course, that we can talk about. But counting winter birds is the, the main thing. I love that because for, you know, I'm here in Southern California. We're having the storm of the century this week. It's, it's actually raining and everyone's freaking out. But in most of the country, winter is a hard time for birds. They can't get out on the trail every day. It's windy. It's cold. And so to be able to just say, just go to your window, just go to your front yard, just go to your backyard and count what you see there. Exactly. And I think that that sentiment was what um, inspired the program to begin with, because feeding birds is such a tremendously popular hobby in North America. And so Erica Dunn is the name of the woman who came up with the program. She thought, well, gee, if 
people are just watching all these birds anyway, why don't we create a little structure for them to share their observations and see if we can learn something from this collective hobby that's kind of taking place anyway. Little did she know it was going to be a multi-decade success that uh, continues to this day. So what kind of data do you gather from Feeder Watch? What, what, what have you learned and what do you hope to learn? Well, the core of the data are just these counts. So what species and how many? And you would think that that might limit you to doing studies on are the bird populations going up or down? But what's amazing is that you can overlay so much other information and data on these bird counts that you can really start to get a sense of how birds are responding to changes in climate or changes in habitat. You can start to understand bird disease dynamics, bird behavior. So the core are the, the counts, but what you can do with it is really as creative as as you can be when you think about how to join different pieces of data and different data sets together. So it's a very versatile data set. That's, that's really, really wonderful and interesting. I, I think about our own backyard feeders here in, in Orange County, and we have a lot of house finches, and I don't see much difference between seeing eight house finches in a day and seeing 10 house finches in a day. But over time, that pattern, if that's also true of my neighbor's backyard and my other neighbor's backyard and other people in LA County, then that tells you something about general populations that's far bigger than my own backyard. That's exactly right. And I think that a lot of people who participate in Feeder Watch, who they a lot of them will write to us, and one of the common themes that seems to come through in um, emails from folks who are saying why they enjoy the program is that it, it means something to them that, what, that their observations become part of something bigger. They kind of take on a larger meaning once they're shared and, it sounds very nerdy to say, but shared and then organized <laughs> into a framework where you can really compare observations from different places across time. I love that. So are you the queen of spreadsheets? Do you just have spreadsheets coming out your ears? How do you organize this them. kind of data? This is a, These are big numbers, I imagine. Millions and millions of bird observations every year. So yes, it is a lot to organize. There's a database at the Lab of Ornithology that it's called Postgres. That's the one they're using now, but it is a very sophisticated. Um, I guess it's called, a, I guess it's a software. It seems like it should be more robust than just a software program. But anyway, this big database holds all of these bird observations and all of the metadata, like where the observations came from, the time, the effort that people put in. And then folks like myself will query that database and pull out spreadsheets and you can do whatever you want with them after that. <laughs> so what are some things that you've learned over the past few years about backyard birds? What are some of the interesting points of data that have come out of this study? Well, I guess one thing that's kind of um, surprising is that there are a lot of backyard birds that actually aren't faring as well as you might think. And this is not just from feeder watch data, but also Christmas bird count data and eBird data. We're learning that uh, things like Blue jays, juncos, morning doves, species that are very common and very widespread are showing up in lower numbers in people's yards, just generally, but also in people's yards. So you might not notice that you have fewer blue jays. 
But if you look at these numbers over time, you start to see, oh, we do. And I, I don't know if um, some of your listeners are familiar with some research that came out from the lab a few years ago about the 3 billion birds lost. And this was looking at these big trends in bird populations and showing that bird numbers really are going down. So trying to think about ways that we can help birds is a really important thing to be doing now because it's not a problem in the future. It's, it's a problem that we're experiencing right now. I was not prepared. I'm a fairly new birder. I've been into birding about four years and I was not prepared for all the ways that birding would break my heart. You know, I, I know now data about window strikes. I know data about cats, you know, and, and there are folks who will say, well, my cat is very gentle. And I'm like, keep your cat inside. You know, there, there are just these things where you think, okay, it was one bird that hit my one window, but you multiply that with a hundred million houses in the United States that all hit one bird. And now you have a population collapse. So how do you hold on to hope in the middle of some really difficult data? What keeps you going? Oh, that's a tricky one to answer. I don't know. I mean, you just have to hold on to hope, right? That, that, that we could still turn things around and that these trends that we're seeing going down aren't necessarily permanent. And a lot of these things, I think, do have to do with the choices that we make about our lives, not just about what plants we plant, but what kind of cars we drive and whether we recycle. And, you know, there are all kinds of things that we can do to try and make our footprint a little less impactful. And, but it does also have to do with what plants you put in your yard because little things like that can make a real big difference for a migrating warbler or a little hummingbird passing through. So, yeah, I just try to hang on to it and, and know that there are a lot of folks out there who really care about wildlife and the environment that we live in and that are trying their best to, to make a little bit of an impact to, to help birds and help nature. Mm. One of the things I've really grown to appreciate about the work that Cornell Lab does is that it's very... Um, it's very friendly to all ages and abilities. So my kids love using the Merlin Bird ID app. And Feeder Watch is something people can do who have mobility issues, who can't get outside as much. You know, I, I think of one of the care homes in our, in our community where we visit sometimes and they have bird feeders in the windows. You know, you can have, you can be any age, any ability, any gender, any anything, and there's something for you that you can do to help the birds, to connect with the birds. Is that intentional on the part of Cornell? Yes, it absolutely is. And it's interesting you should say that because sometimes we'll kind of try and ask people, now what's preventing you from signing up for this X, Y, or Z? And one of the things people say the most about Feeder Watch in particular is that they're worried that they won't be able to identify the birds and they mm. won't be able to contribute data. And I just think, oh my gosh, this program is designed for you. The first thing I can say about that is we send everyone who signs up, if you, if you choose to get it when you sign up, a bird identification poster, which tells you, you don't need a field guide. Just this poster will give you a good idea of what birds you're likely to see at your feeder, no matter where you live in the US or Canada. And the second thing that I have to say about this is that we know from feeder watch counts about how many species someone is likely to see in their yard. And that average number of species that people, that any one person is likely to see, 
is about 11. So you get a field guide and you think, oh my gosh, there are 600 species in here. I am never going to be able to do this. You don't have to. You're probably only going to need to identify about a dozen species. And you can do that. Everyone can do that, especially with the help of the materials that we will send to you. And that's our hope that, you know, folks who are a little hesitant might start to feel more comfortable with the birds around their home and just learn, just learn their vocal birds. You can definitely do it. <laughs> I love that question. What is keeping you from signing up? I imagine you learn so much more than asking people what got you to sign up because they're already signed up. So like they're, they're in, but what's keeping you? What's the barrier? What's the obstacle? Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, just trying to speak to that uh, the concern that it could be too difficult. We really, really are trying to tailor it to be something that's welcoming for people, even with very little previous birding experience. All you need is the interest. That's it. Mm. <laughs> and then you're golden. I love that. And I think no matter where you live with those dozen backyard birds, many of them are very distinctive from one another. Like you're not going to confuse a cardinal and a blue jay. One is red or, you know, brownish with red accents if it's the female and one is blue. You got this. You got this. Totally. Um, and then when you get those really tricky sparrows, you can write to us. Like we answer every single email that people write to us for the, to the feeder watch box. And if you snap a little photo of some confusing sparrow, we are going to help you identify it, and then you'll learn it for all your future counts. So you really don't have to feel daunted by even those, what are they called, LBBs, little brown birds, or LB, <laughs> little brown jobs. We got you. We got you. <laughs> and that, what a resource. I mean, that's amazing. So if you're sitting there in your backyard, you don't know what it is, snap a photo, get it as close and clear as you can, and send it, and you answer every email. You personally? I hope not. Do you sleep what? at night? Yeah, a little bit. Um, there's a very small team of um, support staff uh, on the feeder watch team. And we eventually, I mean, you know, sometimes it's not like, uh, you know, emailing, I don't know what's a big, well, even a big corporation probably doesn't write back quickly. Sometimes it takes us a minute, but we do get back to everyone eventually. We kind of hold that as a standard that we like to maintain. What a beautiful resource for people, that opportunity to learn for free and to in, invest in the birds in your own backyard. And maybe you live in a city and it's just the birds you can see out your window or you can hang a window or hang a feeder outside that 12th story window safely. Be careful. Um, right, right. No, no matter where you are. And, and I appreciate your perspective that it's usually a dozen birds because those field guides are overwhelming, but you're not going to see an American oyster catcher in your yard unless you live on the ocean. You're not going to see a brown pelican. You're not going to see a roseate sp spoonbill. You're, you're going to see house finches and you're going to see sparrows and you're going to see, we had um, a few pintailed whitas in our backyard the other oh. year and it took me forever to figure it. Cause I was like, they're sparrowish, but they're not, but what are they? But they, but the females, you know, they're, they're very distinctive, but not as distinctive as the males. And I, I love the opportunity to to solve small puzzles. <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful part of citizen science too, is you're not always going to get it right. You may not get it right the first time, but the joy and that spark of learning is something that so often we leave behind in childhood and we don't have to. That's exactly right. You absolutely don't. So if we want to participate in Feeder Watch, which we all do because you made such a good case for it, <laughs> how do we do this? The best way to do it is just go to the website. It's www.feederwatch.org and there are instructions to sign up, whether you're in the U.S. or in Canada. And February is an excellent time to do it because 
um, since the season is partway through, we are doing an extra little treat for anyone who signs up in February, and it is to send them not only the sort of main bird ID poster that has lots of common backyard birds, but we're also sending folks now a hawk identification poster that we designed and did a small printing of a couple of years ago, and we're just bringing it back for this one February month. Um, but it's a gorgeous poster and will help with those tricky hawks because those can be hard to tell apart too. So we wanted to give folks a little boost in that, in that department. Did you guys hear that? Free bird poster, free hawk poster. Does life get better? I don't think it does. <laughs> All right. So feederwatch.org. We will link to that in the show notes. Um, when feeder watch season is over, what do you do? Do you just get, do you get a little break from from all the things, or is that when you pour yourself into your research? I saw on your um, on your profile page, you have a list of publications longer than my arm. Yeah, exactly. So we spend the off-season sort of um, gathering ourselves together, and if we need to make changes to the program or change anything about the data entry, that's the time that we do that. We organize all of the data that were collected that previous year and write uh, our annual little publication called Winterbird Highlights. So we try to give back as much as we can what we learn from all of those wonderful observations people send to us. Um, so yes, it's just a time of uh, thinking about the data and recalibrating ourselves and getting ready for the next season. I love that. It, it is very clear from all of the programs, things like Nestwatch and the Christmas Bird Counts, that there is just so much thought and intention behind it and doing it well and tweaking it year upon year that it's not just the same program it was 37 years ago. And I'm sure it was amazing 37 years ago, but every year you learn a little bit more, you tweak a little bit more. What isn't working? What is working? Um, what is one thing um, you're hoping to pull from the data this year? Because it's so interesting. You can gather all this data, but so much of it depends upon what questions you're asking and how do you answer those? Because you can see, for example, a population that's growing or declining, but how do you answer the why question? Um, so what's one interesting question you're focusing on this year? Oh, heavens. There are so many this year. So we actually added a bunch of new types of data to the data entry this past season. And those data include data about mammals that people observe, more information about bird illnesses and mortality. And um, what was the third? Oh, and we also have started gathering information when people are willing to share or want to share about people's well-being. And so the idea after this coming season and for seasons subsequently is to start to get a bigger picture, not just of people's bird observations, but also really start to look at the interaction between how what people observe makes them feel, mm. how they feel, how that changes their behavior, like perhaps do they put out more food or less or clean their feeders more or less? And then how do those behaviors then impact whether or not they see fewer sick birds or different predation events? There's just such, you know, the birds are not living in a vacuum and neither are we. I think there's so much interaction happening between birds and people and mammals and diseases. And we're trying to now get a little bit more insight into that with, within the feeder watch framework as, that is kind of like the shell that's collecting the information. But mm. um, so that's a, there are a lot of questions embedded within that, but hopefully that gives you a little idea of what we're trying to focus on going forward. 
That's fascinating. And to glean all of that information just from people's feeders and, and other, other things that you guys run, like the backyard bird count and things like that, that I often think of, you know, when it's a very busy week and I have a job and I have kids and all these things going on and I can't make it out to the trail and I'm so discouraged, but it's projects like these that remind me, no, 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 10 minutes in the backyard, 10 minutes sitting by the window, that's valuable. And like you said, it's not just valuable for the citizen scientist data that I'm gathering that I'm so happy you'll be able to use, but it's it's valuable for my own heart, for my own emotions, for my own well-being. 10 minutes of daylight, even on a really nasty weather day, it makes a difference. I, yeah, I think it really does. And we're learning this more and more. And I really hope that from these new data that we're collecting in Feeder Watch, we can make that an even stronger case for the value of connecting with nature in our everyday lives. Yeah, if you're having a bad day, get off your phone, turn off your screen, even 10 minutes, 10 minutes, go sit in your yard, 10 minutes, go sit by a window. Exactly. It does not need to be a long time, just a little snippet. What first got you into birding? What sparked your interest in the world of ornithology? Uh, my interest started when I was a wee little kid and had a pair of zebra finches, those little pet birds that you might find at bird stores. And I didn't really care about them too much until they had a little nest with babies. And the notion that you could have two finches and then they would raise babies and you would end up with five finches and you could watch these teeny, teeny little baby birds grow. It blew my mind. And I just became completely fascinated with birds in this avicultural setting. But then that expanded into ornithology outdoors as well. And now here I am still studying birds many, many years later. I love that. I've not heard of a zebra finch spark bird before. You're, you're my first zebra finch spark bird. Yeah, zebra <laughs> finches did it. <laughs> oh, those are amazing. We were the, the family, there were a bunch of memes and jokes about the family that took home the class pet for the weekend before COVID shut everything down. Mm, and we yes. were the family that took home the, the class parakeet and then ended up having the class parakeet for eight months. And yeah. so it was, it was so funny because I'd be taking calls for work and people would say, there's just a lot of feedback on your end. And I'm like, no, that's Boomer. That's Boomer. He's singing to you. <laughs> it just it was so funny. But it we needed that bird during the pandemic, during all the stress and all the chaos and all the hardship and all the, you know, my kids losing their minds because they can't play soccer with their team for months. Boomer, Boomer saved us. And I'm, <laughs> I'm so grateful for that silly little bird. That's awesome. <laughs> So hardest question of the show. I warned you before that this was coming. This is, okay. this is difficult. This is difficult. Okay. Emma, what is your favorite bird today? <laughs> well, I, I have said this before and I will say it again. I absolutely love common red poles. I just think they are. And you probably don't get to see them in Southern California. I'm so sorry. But pintail whitas are also amazing birds. <laughs> They're right up there. But the little common red poles, I, they are just, they blow my mind because they are so tiny and yet they live in such absolutely frigid conditions, burrowing in snow to keep warm and somehow, somehow finding little tiny seeds and foods, even when everything is covered with snow. I just can't believe it. So that's my favorite because they just seem like an impossibility. 
I love that. I love a hearty little bird. There's, you know, there's something about the big, flashy, beautiful, whatever, but there's something, my favorite bird is a song sparrow for similar reasons. Oh, like yeah. they, they keep singing even when it's really nasty out. And I just think there's something beautiful that I have never in my life seen a common red pole. It is not yet checked off my life list. So you, you've inspired me. I gotta, I gotta get north. Yeah. I they don't usually, cause they erupt. So Sometimes they will come south, but not quite that far south. <laughs> I'm watching the message boards. I'm keeping track. So yeah. I can... uh, well, well, Verdon, do you have Verdon where you are? Little desert songbird? No, I don't think uh, we okay. do. All right. That's another one. Kind of southwestern uh, Sonoran Chihuahuan desert species. I love them too. Also tiny and blow my mind because they can live in the hottest of conditions. So I think I have something for these extreme... Uh, <laughs> Extreme small birds. <laughs> you like to go to the edges of what's possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, after feeder watch comes to an end, after we're done watching winter birds, because yay, it's spring. Spring will come. It's going to happen. What else can we be looking forward to that's coming out through the Cornell Lab? What other seasonal offerings are, are coming down the pike? I know there's the Christmas bird count. That is a ways off. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, and let's see. The great backyard bird count is coming up very soon. That's a, a mid-February um, uh, activity, but so springtime. Oh, I think, I think they have a big day in May. Maybe I can't quite remember. So, you know, you'll and have what to, what is a big day for those, those who are uninitiated? Yeah. It's a big so day. The big day or a big day is when you go outside and, or you could do it from your home, I guess. And you try to see as many different species of birds as you can in a 24 hour period. I personally have never done a big day, but I know folks who have, and they take it very seriously. They plan out their routes, and they just go, 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 because the goal is see as many birds as you can. So it's kind of a fun, uh, a fun sounding activity. <laughs> and in late spring, there's going to be a lot of biodiversity in most of the country. There are going to be migratory birds coming through, and most of the birds that left for the winter will be back. And so May is a great time for that. If you're, I, I was. Over the holidays, I was back visiting my family in Wisconsin, and I went out for several hours and saw 11 different kinds of birds. You know, I was like, okay, this is different than Southern California. And, and many of them were bald eagles. I mean, it was very exciting. We don't get bald eagles down here. But to be in a season where you're likely to be able to get 30, 40 different kinds of birds, especially if you spend the whole day and, and you start early enough or late enough, you have a chance of an owl, broaden your, broaden yep. your species count. Yep, exactly. Exactly. You got to include those night birds. <laughs> night hawks. Oh, I'm sure you have night hawks down there. So. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the fun of something that's organized like this big day is you may be going out on your own or you may be going out with a local birding club or some friends, but you're also taking part in this national exercise where people can kind of compare notes and what did you see? And that's so exciting. And so much of birding can be solitary, but it can also be fun to join with a bigger community and have those conversations as well. I love that you organize these for us so we can just jump in. So we can look forward to the backyard bird count and we can look forward to the big day. But right now we are focusing in on, we're honing in on feeder watch. What else should we know before we jump in? Um, just to uh, try not to worry about it too much and enjoy the program. Um, and so when you go to sign up for feeder watch, you'll see that there is a participation fee. And a lot of folks ask, why is there a participation fee? And so just to clarify that uh, the program, part of why it's been going on for now about three and a half decades is because it is entirely supported by these participation fees from participants. And 
Those fees allow us to provide printed materials like the posters that we send and a little calendar. And they allow us to provide the participant support that we do. So, so I just want to also send a little thank you to any feeder watchers, past, present, or future, who may be listening, because this really is their program. They support it in terms of finances and in terms of the time that they give collecting all the bird observations. So there's a fee for the program, but then the poster is free. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> a little, little incentive. I appreciate that. That's one of my favorite things about attending birding fests and things are you get stickers and you get flyers and it's so fun as a parent to bring those home and then the kids get excited and it's on their water bottle and then their friends ask about it and then we can talk about why crows are so cool. So I'm looking forward to putting those posters up. Um, and I think I'm going to put the backyard bird ones right up near our back sliding glass door and have the kids participate with me in feeder watch because that will get them outside. That will get them looking. Um, and they can identify a morning dove. They can identify a house finch. The sparrows are trickier, but that's true for me too. So it's all right. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Emma, anything else we should know or you'd like our listeners to know today? I think we covered it. We covered it all. So I think we're good. <laughs> Thank you so, so much for the gift of your time and your expertise and the important work that you do to care for the birds and help us have a, a more beautiful world. Oh, well, thank you for letting me come on the show and share a little bit about this program. I really love it. So I'm, I'm happy for any, anyone new to get to learn about it and hopefully enjoy it. Well, everyone, check out Feeder Watch. I will link to it in the show notes. And also check out the other good work that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology does. If you do not yet have the Merlin Bird ID app, I link to that in the show notes of every single episode of The Thing with Feathers. Go and download it. It will change your life. Thanks so much, Emma. Thank you. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music, to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put a skull in your soul. Yes, it does.